God, your word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. And Lord, so many times we stumble in the dark because God, I know in my experience, I'm trying to navigate a pathway without your word. And so, Lord, I pray that we would catch ourselves ahead of time before we stumble and fall. Lord, that if we see things that are being taught in this world, we wouldn't be pulled away by some strange doctrine or teaching. But, Lord, we would use your word to light the way in front of us. And, Lord, that you would be there with us. You are light. And, God, that our relationship with you would be so close. It would be so uh, in tune, Lord, that you would have our ear always. Lord, so many times we, we... try to navigate alone. And Lord, you're always there for us. All we have to do is call. You're right there. And God, I pray that we would speak often with you about the things that we study in your word. So Lord, I ask that now as we, as we open this passage of scripture, that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding and wisdom. And Lord, not just the ability to understand what it means, but to do, Lord, to do what it says and to live these things out. And God, to be your ambassadors and to represent you well. Lord, it's our goal. It's our desire to glorify you through our lives and to enjoy the relationship we have with you and thereby enjoy it with each other. So Lord, bless this time. Use it to grow this church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In his book, The Prodigal Church, the author Jared Wilson encourages the church to simplify vision. Um, Simplify the vision and the way that they formulate and run programs and ministries. A lot of times we can complicate things unnecessarily. And so the book in a lot of ways is encouraging people to simplify and to really do things in, in, a, in a gospel-oriented way. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't do hard things. It means that you don't complicate something that doesn't need to be complicated. Um, and he shares in that line of thinking the following quote from the, the often brilliant D.A. Carson. And he said this, We depend on plans, programs, vision statements, but somewhere along the way, we have succumbed to the temptation to displace the foolishness of the cross with the wisdom of strategic planning. It's interesting, isn't it? Because strategy, is strategy important? Yes, but it's not important when it displaces the foolishness of the cross. If you think about it, Wilson adds this afterwards. He says, that should remind us of the Apostle Paul's vision statement. And it's this, it's from 1 Corinthians 2, 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's Paul's vision statement. Have you ever read vision statements for ministries before? It's fascinating stuff. Sometimes it's extended reading. Um, But what's interesting about it is that was Paul's vision statement when he was talking to the Corinthian church. You know what? Here's the thing. Jesus Christ, him crucified. That's what we're going to focus on. Just simple, straightforward gospel. This is who we need. This is what we need. Now, Paul stated that, but he stated that in in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, after he had said this, if you back up a little bit and look at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 through 23, he says this, where's the one who is wise? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Why do we as Christians focus on and embrace the foolishness of God 
in human flesh crucified. Why do we embrace that? It's this reason. And, and many of us would have answers to that, but I'll, I'll summarize just the way that I would state that because it is there on the cross of Christ, despite our lack of ability or worthiness, the charge that was against us because of our sin was itself crucified. It was on the cross that the charge against us because of our sin was crucified. It was executed and put completely out of the way so that it might never be seen again. Everything that accused us in our sin, all the indebtedness that we have, as we'll see in our text this morning, was put to death and executed on the cross. And that is blessed truth, is it not? That's amazing. And this is what we're going to see in our text this morning. That sets us up to really receive what we have this morning. And my prayer is this, you guys, and so often I want this to be the case. Sometimes we need to be introspective and really understand what it is that we're dealing with and, and, and go to a time of, of um, brokenness before God. But so often, you guys, I think that we don't choose to rejoice or be thankful in the truth that we receive. That we receive this with joyfulness and realize that God has saved us completely in Christ Jesus. And Paul continues to make that point because he doesn't want them to add anything to it. Heretical teaching wants you to add hoops that you have to jump through in order to achieve this or in order to be able to receive it. And Paul says, stop it. You can receive it right now. And to add things to the gospel is to deface the cross that we hold so dear. And we don't ever want to do that. So Colossians chapter 2, picking up in verse 11 from where we left off last time. And we'll go back as we get started. But let's read our primary text and then we'll, we'll talk about how this connects to verses 9 and 10 for context sake. But in verse 11, Paul continues and he says this, You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Uh, there's so much to consider, but let's think about this. When you would talk about circumcision, and we're not going to get into details, when you would talk about circumcision in this culture, you were talking about something that people would do to ratify or verify their holiness, to verify that they were set apart to God for something. This was physical demonstration of something. And so remember that verses 11 through 12 are following one of the most powerful spiritual truths delivered to the church. We talked about this last week. If you look at verses 9 and 10, verses 11 and 12 are in context with that. And he says this in verses 9 and 10, just to refresh our memory. The fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Jesus, and we've been filled by him. The fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and we've been filled by him. With that being said, the next thing for Paul to deal with, saying you're filled with the fullness of God through Jesus, filled with the fullness of God, the next thing we need to deal with is, is the next item on the heretical teacher's list, and it's their list of to-dos. It's circumcision of Gentile Christians as a requirement of salvation. If you don't do this, you're not saved. Well, they, the, both those statements can't be true. 
You can't be filled with the fullness of God and still have things to, to go through to be saved. If you're filled with the fullness of God, what are you? Saved. And so he's saying, okay, so these are contradictory things here. One of them isn't true. And, and the, the deal is, is Paul wants to show that keeping the law as, as a prerequisite to your salvation is easily defeated by the gospel. And it's not just easily defeated by the gospel because of what Paul says, but he builds his case off of Old Testament scripture. And this is what's awesome. There are two views in the his, throughout the history of Israel about circumcision. And the first would be this. Um, some viewed it as the act of circumcision was enough in and of itself to make someone right with God. In other words, that's all you needed. If you did that, then you would be okay with God. And we see this a lot as you read the Gospels, the pharisaical style of thinking. Keep these things. We are doing this. Therefore, we are Abraham's sons. You know, we're the sons of Abraham. And Jesus is like, you're not Abraham's sons. You know, don't you love the moxie of Jesus sometimes? He was completely meek. He was completely humble. But he just tells them the truth. You're not, God, you're not Abraham's sons. That's not how it works. And they're like, we, we're not just Abraham. You ever get into these arguments where you just have to one-up everybody? Like, we're not even Abraham's sons. We're the sons of God. And he's like, no. He's like, listen, before Abraham was I am. Then they wanted to kill him, right? Because he just made himself equal with God, right? Jesus is like, okay, let me just tell you the truth how it is and that you should be receiving this from me. This is the situation and you're not really hearing me. This is, this is what it really is. Okay, so the act of circumcision throughout Old Testament thinking, there was a group that would think of it in this way, that it was enough in and of itself to make someone right with God. You just had to perform this work. That is salvation by works. That is salvation by you doing something to be made worthy of God's love, affection, and salvation. There's a second view, and this is the true spiritual leaders of Israel and prophets' opinion. If you read the spiritual leaders of Israel, the men who were in, walking in obedience to God, and you read the message of the prophets, you'll find this to be true. They insisted that circumcision was an outward mark of inward dedication. It was an outward mark of inward dedication, of an inward submission to God. You can read about it in Exodus 6.12 as it talks about having uncircumcised lips. Interesting idea. The point's being made. Your heart's not right. Or about having uncircumcised hearts, Ezekiel 44, 7, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. There's, these are all sprinkled all throughout the Old Testament. Or having an uncircumcised ear in Jeremiah chapter 6. These things are, re are referred to all throughout because circumcision is a matter of heart. This is the truth of it. The dedication was not in the cutting of flesh, but in the cutting out from life of everything which was not the will of God. The dedication comes from within. It begins in the heart. Now, if you believe something with your heart, will your body follow suit? The answer is yes. If you believe it in your heart, you will physically start to take steps to prove what that is. This is what James is talking about in James chapter 2. When he says that faith without works is dead, he goes, talk about your faith without works. I'll show you my faith. What? by my works. I'll show you what I believe by what I do. And he's saying, you're not doing so that you're saved. You're doing because you're saved. You live the life that you live because of what's happened on the inside, not the way that you live somehow cleanses the inside. It doesn't work in that direction. Very interesting brain studies have been done on this, by the way, talking about the center of your emotions, your heart, and then the operational side of your mind and how those flow one direction. We're not going to get into it, but it's fascinating stuff to read about. It shows that your mind never wins your heart, but your heart can win your mind. 
Very interesting concept when you think about what scripture teaches. In agreement with the Old Testament and what the teachers of the Old Testament convey to us, Paul explained this clearly in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. He says this, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. By the spirit, not the letter, that person's praise is not from people, but from God. You want to talk about being very unpopular with your own people? Say that as Paul to the Jews. Yeah, you know what makes you a Jew actually is what's happening inside the heart, which means the Gentiles can be a part of it too. Run. <laughs> I mean, like it's not going to, it's not going to go over very well for them. They saw themselves as being, you know, because of what they physically underwent, that they were separated. No, he says this begins in the heart. See, God's design from the beginning was to sanctify and save a people so that they could take part of what he was doing in the bigger picture and dwell in the land and be a light to the nations around them. That was God's plan from the beginning. And this is what Paul's talking about in Colossians 2, verses 11 through 12. It's not something that's outward. It's inward by the Spirit. And he says this in 2, 11 through 12. We'll read it again. You were also circumcised in him, in him, with a cir circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We put off our sin nature, our flesh, in Christ. We put that sin nature off in Christ, and the baptism of salvation by which we're laid to rest in Christ, then raised in righteousness by him, is true circumcision. It's true salvation. It's true separation unto God. And so don't fall, Paul says to the church in Colossians, to this heretical teaching by whoever's preaching this to you that you have to do this to be saved. And remember, you know, this was a, a Gentile-dominated congregation that he's preaching to. He's saying, this is not a prerequisite to your salvation. You are saved in Christ because your circumcision is in him. It's powerful words when you think about it. It applies to us because oftentimes we want to jump through hoops to prove to God that we belong to him. And God says, you aren't proving anything to me. I know who are mine. I know you belong to me. Walk in love. Walk in obedience. Stop trying to prove things to God or prove things to people. And it's interesting because Paul says this back in Romans 2 as well. It says the one who is, who is circumcised by the spirit, not the letter, that person's praise is not from people, but from God. His praise is from God. In other words, he is validated by God. How much are we validating ourselves by what other people say rather than what God says about us? Because I don't know what God says about me. He just told you. He tells you in his word over and again. He'll tell you in prayer if you give him time. If you give him time, God will validate you in prayer as well. We put off that sin nature, sin nature in Christ. It's the spiritual act that we require, not the physical law that we keep in order to save ourselves. The law states over and again, do this and do that. The gospel of Jesus states over and again, done this, done that. Jesus finished it. He completed it. Read the book of Hebrews. It's all about it. It's all about Christ's completed work and us walking in that. 
We rest in his finished work and we walk in obedience because we love him, not because we're earning one point towards our own salvation. Your salvation has been completely paid for. Water baptism, worth noting in this text, and I do believe that we're talking about a spiritual baptism based on the, the context of what he's talking about, but it's, it's important to note here that water baptism, when we baptize people in the lake, which is always fun up here living in the Northwest because you get to freeze people to death, um, but you know, when, when you baptize people in public, we go through that public physical action. I want to explain this to you. You realize that that is in a way a lot like circumcision where it's showing people in a physical way an inward truth. It's showing people in a physical demonstration an inward truth. And just as belief about circumcision becoming something that was required for salvation rather than what the Bible teaches, a condition of the heart, so too water baptism is not to be understood as a physical act that saves us, but rather an outward demonstration of the condition of the heart. It's an outward demonstration of what's happened inside. And reason that's important is because of this. If baptism was a requirement, why would Jesus say to the thief next to him on the cross that today you'll be with me in paradise? He didn't have time to baptize him. Is baptism important? Water baptism? Yeah, absolutely. I do lots of them. I do them for kids at camp. I baptize people. I baptize people in the Jordan River. I baptize them in Haiti. I baptize people all over the place. Why? Because it's a commandment in scripture to do it because it's a physical demonstration of an inward truth. It has absolute value, but there is not salvation in water baptism. And water baptism shouldn't be taken lightly. You're declaring that you've died to the flesh and risen again in life in Christ. You're declaring that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. That's why it should be done whenever a person comes to believe in Jesus. But our belief in Christ is never to be hidden. And water baptism is the beginning of that journey of publicly declaring. It's the beginning of the journey of publicly declaring your love for Christ and your new life in Christ. And we should be practicing that. That's why I say it's the beginning. If I could underline a part of beginning, that's where you start declaring your life in Christ. That's where you show people and then the rest of your life you show them even more by how you live. So now Paul's going to build on this and he's going to give, as he talks about, it's not about law, it's about what Christ has done. He's going to give three vivid pictures for us to consider. And we'll break down verses 13, 14, and 15 accordingly because each one contains a picture, a vivid picture for us to look at of what Christ has done. You ready? Great. Here we go. Verse 13 says this, and when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. I think we all get this. Someone who has passed away or is dead is not terribly productive. I think that makes sense, right? They're not terribly productive. Their productive days are over. They're, you know, it, depending on where they stood with the Lord, they're either with Jesus or, or they're not. But, but their, their productive days, their physically productive days are gone. Those days are gone. And so here, here's what Paul's saying. The point he wants to make here is this. Human beings were dead in sin. No ability to save themselves. No ability to do anything about it completely unable to do anything about their situation. The newness of life in Jesus is so powerful, it brought us back from the dead. He's like, you have been resurrected spiritually. You were spiritually dead. Now you're alive. He's like, you realize that if you're spiritually dead, there's nothing that you can do anymore. You are dead. And he says, there's only one thing that could be done for, for you, and that's for Jesus himself to save you and bring you back to life again. 
That was the only thing that could save us. And the newness of life in Jesus is so powerful, it brought us back from the very dead. It reached not only to those who expected it, which we could say qualifies, the Jews would qualify as that, those who expected to be saved by God. It was so powerful, it reached all the way to the Gentiles who wouldn't have expected it, who wouldn't have expected God's favor and salvation. Jesus, his sacrifice was so powerful, it reached all the way even to us. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5. Paul makes the same point to the Ephesian church, but he concludes verse 5 so powerfully it needs to be noted. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Don't you love it? You are saved by grace. You are not earning it. I am not earning it. Praise God over and again. We are not earning this salvation. He saved us by his grace. The grace of God connotes his favor. It means that he gave you his favor when you didn't deserve it. You have it in Jesus. The favor of God. And with that favor comes the new life and thereby a change of perspective and of heart. It changes our perspective on life. It changes our heart. When God loves us that much, how should we be reacting to people? How should we be living our lives? We love him because he first loved us. John the Apostle wrote that in 1 John. And therefore, we begin our new life in Christ by fulfilling what Jesus said was the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. And we know this, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and never forget the second Jesus said the second is like the first. What does he say? What is it? Do we know it? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Now hold up. If we are recognizing the grace and the love of God, we cannot accurately recognize and affirm it without paying it forward. We cannot be a part of it unless we are being a part of it. Does that make sense? I don't mean to sound redundant, but if we're not forgiving people, if we're not loving people, if we're not acting like Christ and living that out, here's the thing. That's where he says, you need to love God. But when you love God, it reacts this way. And I think that there's this fine line for us that we have to understand. That doesn't earn your salvation. That is the byproduct of your salvation, and it needs to be happening in the church. We need to be loving each other and forgiving each other and letting things go and not pouting. We get this, right? How many of us struggle with things in the past that we're holding on to that we don't have to? Bitterness is like a claw that digs into our life and it just eats away at us. It tears us apart. We need to let things go. We need to forgive. We need to move on. Paul expounds on the byproduct of the new life as well. In Ephesians 4.32, he says this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. And if you want to know how that forgiveness works or what it looks like, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Let's go back to what we just learned. What was your situation and my situation before Jesus? Dead. Dead. How much did he forgive us? How much did he demonstrate his love for us? He did it through grace, through the saving power of Jesus Christ, not of works. None of us can boast. And he says, you want to know how you should forgive each other? Just like that. Even if that person is, you ever say it before? You're dead to me. 
You know, like, even if that person is dead, forgive them. Forgive them. You are the example and the representation of Christ in their life through his forgiveness. You are called and commanded to forgive in the same way because that's how you represent him. That's how you accurately reflect him. Death to life means that life looks like Jesus now. And if we look like Jesus now, then we are part of that act of forgiveness towards other people, even if they've wronged us. Isn't that what Jesus did? You could just line all these things up. How much of what Jesus received at the hands of human beings did he deserve? He didn't deserve the treatment he got. What did he do? On the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He forgave them while they were killing him, while they were torturing him. I have to remind myself of this all the time. I don't best represent the heart of God when I love my friends. I best represent the heart of God when I love my enemies. If you want to represent the heart of God, love your enemies. That's why Jesus told us to do that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. He says, even non-believers, even Gentiles understand that it's easy to love your friends, but you show the heart of God when you love enemies. That's hard stuff. Anyone having an easy time of that? Good. Me neither. But you guys, this is being a Christian. This is what being Christ-like is, and it's what it looks like. Okay, first picture, death to life. Second picture, verse, verse 14. This is a powerful one. Paul says this, here's another way that Jesus has saved us. Here's another way that you're not adding to your salvation or earning it. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and was, has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Huge, powerful. It should immediately paint a picture in our mind. Who was nailed to the cross? Jesus was. What do you picture when you picture something being nailed to the cross? You picture the nails driving through his flesh into the wood. And he says this, with that vivid picture in our mind as Christians, as followers of Jesus, he erased the certificate of debt. That nail, like a certificate of debt with its obligations, by the way, there's nothing you can do to change this. It has obligations. It has been ratified and proven that you owe that you owe and you cannot pay. It's been taken away and it was driven into the flesh of Christ on the cross to die there, to die there. What a picture. It's as if Paul was unsatisfied with giving the, the picture of human beings being dead and brought to life by Christ. He's like, you know what? That's not enough. That's not enough. You want a real clear picture of this? He gives us this picture of our gigantic IOU to God that was amassed from all of our sin and all of our failure. And you're like, I have sin and failure. Oh, don't worry. It gets really good. You realize that when he's talking about this, even the words that he's using, some of them would be like blotting out, wiping away. He has wiped it away from us. If you look at the Greek, what's interesting about this, when you think about how things were written back then, ink worked differently. It didn't absorb into the product they were using. Most likely it kind of would beat up on it, it would take time, and it was easy to take a wet rag or, or wet piece of cloth and wipe that off and clean it off. He goes, he has wiped that away. He has cleaned that off. He took that thing that was written against you, he cleaned it off, and he nailed it into Jesus on the cross. 
the picture's clear. God has wiped away our sins so that it was as if it had never been written, as if, as if it had never been written down. There's no way to go back and look it up and be like, see, this wasn't paid for. No, 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 no. It's been wiped off, nailed to Christ. It's dead. I believe that this text gives us even a greater appreciation for understanding 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25. It's not on the screen, but I'll read it to you. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Interesting phrasing when you think about what we just read in Colossians 2. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I could preach on that text for the rest of my life and never move from it. What a powerful thing to say. What an amazing, overwhelming truth that we have been completely healed and brought to life by the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus. God has so utterly destroyed the condemnation that was against us. This is grace. This is what grace looks like. This is overwhelming, joy-inducing, thanksgiving-producing love of God. So how do we... I mean, we're going to look at another picture in a second here, but it's just, it just strikes me. How are we then transferring this truth that we have to get from here into here, down rooted deep in here, and then out again? How are, how are we doing? Are, 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 we, are we transmitting this well? Are we transmitting this love of God, this grace well? Do people see it in us? Is it noticeable because you realize we're reading these powerful truths, right? And I think that we can all agree. These are very powerful things that we're seeing here. If we actually believe this is what God has done, these are powerful things, right? I want you to think about this. Are we subtle about our saving Lord? Are we being subtle about what he's done for us? Do people actually wonder what we believe? Do, do we look like the world? Jesus looked nothing like the world around him. Even the religious leaders were like, what? And the people that listened to him teach, they were used to listening to rabbis. What did they say about Jesus? This guy doesn't talk like a rabbi. Why? He preaches with authority. He preaches with power. Christ in you, the hope of glory, you can preach with power too. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus bodily, and he is in you, Colossians 2, 9 through 10. What does that look like in your sphere? What does that look like in your world? Don't be condemned, Christian. Be inspired. Are you holding back something that God wants to work through you? He gives a third picture. Paul's relentless. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. This is an interesting picture. And the reason it's interesting is because it's very cultural. And it's something that they would get immediately when Paul said it. This is Greek culture. This is the Roman world. Okay, so 
transport us back in time to a world where Rome was conquering everything that was known. They were the superpower. Nobody messed with Rome. And Rome was dominating the known world at that time. And this church would totally understand, especially being dominated by Gentiles, but the Jews got it as well, exactly what Paul's talking about. The pictures of the triumphant Roman general. Okay, now think about this. Look at the verse. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Now think about this. The Roman procession, when a general had won a really notable victory, he was allowed to march his victorious armies through the streets of Rome after winning his victory, kind of like a parade, and behind him would follow the kings and the leaders and the people he had defeated. They would be disarmed and they would be marching behind him now enslaved to his victory, right? They were openly branded as his spoils. These are the spoils of this victory that this general has, has accomplished. Paul thinks of Jesus as a conqueror enjoying a kind of cosmic triumph. Jesus's scale isn't just over a city. Jesus's scale is over the universe. And he says he's in cosmic triumph and in his triumphal procession, the powers of evil beaten forever are paraded in front of them for, for all the world to see. Every power. Remember we talked about this last week. All that we need to overcome any situation or any power in the universe is Jesus. Why? Because this is his triumphal procession. This is the ability that he has. He has walked every power available through the streets of his glorious kingdom saying, what do you think? They're all beaten down. They're all nothing. They're all insignificant. He is the one who saves. He is the one who has purchased us. I love that Paul uses this picture because, you know, we, we talk about the shepherd, Jesus being the shepherd. As we read in, in, in Peter, you know, Jesus is the shepherd. He's the overseers of our souls. He's the one who went to the cross. He bore our, our sin and, and he died there. And by his wounds, we are healed. And then Paul goes, you get that you were dead and now you're alive. You get that these things were nailed to the cross, meaning that he was crucified there in weakness. But he goes, do you know something else that Jesus is? Overwhelmingly, cosmically powerful. So powerful that his victory is not just being celebrated in some room somewhere with a pizza party, right? He is marching the defeated cosmos behind him going, all this, mine. All of this, powerless compared to me. Why are we looking for strength anywhere else? Why are we looking for power and encouragement anywhere but at the feet of of the one who not only defeated all the powers of the universe, but who loves your soul, loves you dearly, purchased you at the cost of his own life. God accomplished not only all he promised through Jesus, but he accomplished all that we need. It goes so much further beyond what he set out to do because we start to understand that what he set out to do was not complete that job. It was to complete eternity. And, and that's what we see, especially when we look at not only our salvation, but the prophetic record of scripture. God has not only completed and saved us, God is going to finish the job here. And the reason we know that is what he's done in here. We look forward to the end of all things. I look forward to biblical prophecy happening. Why? You're like, dude, have you read Revelation? Oh yeah, it's going to get so rough. But do you know why I'm stoked? 
because Jesus is the one who parades all of the work and the power of the cosmos behind him and says, beat it all, beat it all. He's the one who's coming again, church. He's the one that's returning. Heretical teaching will urge you and I to trust in things that can't save us. It'll teach you and I that we need to do this to achieve that. And I want us to always remember, church, Jesus has already done it and achieved all of it. So we hide ourselves in Christ. We rest in Christ. Because it's there on the cross of Jesus, despite our lack of ability or worthiness, the charge that was against us because of our sin was itself crucified. It was executed and put completely out of the way so that it might never be seen again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul relates his personal struggle to us, and we'll close with this, this thought. He relates his personal struggle to us, and he says that he had asked God three separate times to take a thorn in the flesh. And most would agree with the word that he uses there and the different um, translations that, that have come from the Greek language that he was talking about something physical that he was struggling with. And he says, I asked the Lord three times to take this away from me. And God said, no. God said no, and he told him why he wouldn't. He said, my power is perfected in your weakness. My power is perfected there. I think it's easy for us to, at least for me, and I don't want to, I don't want to assume on your part. It's easy for me to picture a God so powerful who can speak things into existence. I mean, it would still be wonderful and amazing to see, but, but I understand God's power in that kind of way. Do we understand God's power in the context of what Paul experienced it in, where he says that my power is actually perfected when you are weak? Because we think about these awesome demonstrations of God's power. What if the power that God wants to work through us is going to be demonstrated through our weakness? What if it's going to be demonstrated in the fact that we are not capable, that we are struggling, that we are suffering? That's how he demonstrated his power through the church in the book of Acts, isn't it? As they suffered. Maybe the only way that the world is going to be able to hear our vision statement is through our suffering. Because the power of the cross and the power of the name of Jesus is demonstrated in that vision statement. We have come to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We have come to keep the main thing the main thing because we recognize that it's the power of God that's presented in that weakness. Let's pray together and then let's worship church. God, I am so thankful to be a part of a church, Lord, that. is getting regular opportunities as you've given us to see in your word, Lord, just how much you can do through our inability. And Lord, it's not that we come beating ourselves down, just, you know, not, not even working towards a goal, but just laying on the ground, expecting you to do something through us. Lord, we want to move forward, but we recognize it's going to be your power.
We recognize, Jesus, that all the victory has been won in you. And Lord, I just thank you that the truth that we remind ourselves of so often, Lord, that we fight from victory and not for one. God, I pray for us to find rest and peace there. Not to cease movement, but to stop, stop striving within to prove something. God, there is so much of me that struggles regularly with feeling the need to prove something. And Lord, we recognize that when we look at you and see ourselves having been dead and now being alive, Lord, when we look at you and we realize that you have done all that we need to be saved, Lord, you've taken uh, the accusations, Lord, and, and the ordinances, all the things that we, we could never achieve and you nailed them to the cross. Lord, when you have marched the powers of this universe behind you in triumphant procession, thank you. There's no condemnation. You remind us over and over again that we can trust you, that you are going to do what you desire in our lives. Well, we just need to submit to you and walk in obedience. As we worship God, I pray that you just speak and that you receive this offering of praise because you are worthy of it, Lord. You have done everything and your grace overwhelms us. We just praise you for it. Let's keep our heads bowed. Just take a moment to let the Lord speak to you as we go to a time of worship. <laughs> 